was, uh, I, I was thinking a little while ago, it was actually some years ago now when my kids were teenagers, uh, my family was headed to dinner just to catch some, you know, get some chicken wings and kind of catch up with each other midweek. And uh, I remember heading there with my wife and our two kids and um, my son kind of uh, leaned over and he said, so dad, uh, are you preaching this weekend? And I happen to remember, and I was like, yeah, I, I am. And he's like, uh, really? Like, what are you talking about? Tell us about it. And I'm like, going, you're putting me on, aren't you, kid, right? After I regained control of the car, I, I decided to, because <laughs> he had never asked me about that before, but I was, I got kind of emotional. Like, I, as a father, I was like, oh, wow, my son's interested in what I'm going to preach. He's, he's interested in what I'm going to talk about and how I'm going to open God's word to a receptive and eager congregation. And he wants to know, like, what's that like? And, and what are you going to talk about? You know, tell me. And, and so I, I really was, I didn't know what to say, but I did get, like, a little misty. And, um, and I was thinking, man, this is like a, a father-son holy moment right there in the car. It was beautiful. So I, I kind of just shared what I had at that point and uh, kind of gave him a summary of my message. And uh, when I finished, he kind of looked at me a little bit puzzled and he's like, what, what is that it? I mean, is that all? Like, where are all the funny parts? And then he said, rather kind of disappointedly while he shook his head, he said, don't you know the only reason they pay you is you're kind of funny? <laughs> so much for that father-son holy moment. <laughs> well, today I wanted to, as we step into this story, I want to look at one more passage, one more passage that I really didn't get. I didn't understand. I mean, I read it. I probably even taught on it. But I didn't kind of get what was going on in the passage until... Until I was there a couple of weeks ago with this group of 25 standing on the site where the action unfolded, and then it kind of became clear. There was just a, another layer of understanding. So today, I want to do that for you. I just want to unpack a passage that you're probably familiar with, um, but maybe we can kind of pick it apart verse by verse, and, uh, and we can see maybe another layer of understanding. Maybe it brings a little clarity both to you and me. Um, but unfortunately, as my son would tell you, not a whole lot of funny parts. But we're going to forge ahead anyhow, okay? All right. Uh, turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 7. It's Luke 7. Uh, these verses in Luke, the first 10 verses, they're really familiar to most of us. It's Jesus healing a Roman centurion's servant, where Jesus is more than a little impressed by the faith expressed by this Roman army commander. So again, we'll take it on kind of verse by verse, make some comments, and then we'll move through this passage. So let's dive in. Luke chapter 7, starting in verse 1. It says, when Jesus had finished saying all this in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. So you can tell already we're, we're jumping in at the end of something, right? He had, he had just finished saying something, teaching something, and uh, we are. We're, we're jumping in at the very end of an extended passage called the Sermon on the Plain, a little less known as the Sermon on the Mount. This one was on a flat surface, Sermon on the Plain that Jesus taught that Luke actually recorded in his chapter 6. That was his body of teaching there. In fact, if you flip back one page in your Bible, in the middle of Luke chapter 6, verse 17, we can kind of sort out where we just kind of came in on the end. It records this, verse 17. So Jesus went down with them and stood on a level place. A large crowd of his disciples was there, and a great number of people from all over Judea and Jerusalem 
and the coastal towns of Galilee. Skip down real quick to verse 20. Looking at his disciples, Jesus began to teach them. That's where we're jumping in. Jesus is speaking to his disciples and a great many people from all over the region. And the rest of chapter six is just a summary of what Jesus taught this crowd in his sermon on the plain. Jesus taught them who was considered blessed in the kingdom of heaven, about loving your enemies and how to treat those who hurt you. Jesus taught about forgiving others rather than judging them. He taught about the centrality of your motives, your heart motives, how they, they are most important. And he taught that the only sure foundation for life was obedience to the word of God, the very words he was speaking, the very words he was teaching them. That's what Jesus has just finished saying in the hearing of all the people. He then enters Capernaum, where we pick up the action. Let me first tell you that Capernaum is where Jesus made his home during his ministry years. You know he was born in Bethlehem. He then fled Bethlehem and he went to Egypt with his parents for a couple of years to avoid Herod. Then after coming back into Israel, he moved to Nazareth where he grew up. Now he's moved from Nazareth to Capernaum uh, when he started to travel, when he began to preach and teach about the kingdom of God. In fact, this move from Nazareth to Capernaum, it's recorded in Matthew 14, 14 as a fulfillment of prophecy of the coming Messiah. It's found in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah records that the Messiah would live in the northwestern side of the lake. That's the Sea of Galilee. The northwestern side considered Galilee. Exactly what Jesus did. In addition, the Gospel of Mark records that after returning from a preaching, teaching trip in the surrounding towns, Jesus returned home to Capernaum. All this to say is that Capernaum is now his hometown, his home base for his three or more years of ministry. So Capernaum is this town on the north end of the Sea of Galilee. It's a village where Jesus has already performed several miracles and he has already done some teaching in the local Jewish synagogue. In fact, the bulk of Jesus' teaching that's recorded and the majority of the miracles recorded in the Gospels all take place on this northern rim of the Sea of Galilee. The majority of the Gospel accounts are, are set in these fishing villages, Capernaum, Chorazin, Magdala, Mary Magdalene's hometown, and Bethsaida, which is hometown of uh, several of Jesus' disciples, James and John and Peter and Andrew and a couple others. In fact, on our recent trip, we spent, the group of 25 of us, we spent half of our days, half of the tour, were, were around these towns. We focused in this area of Galilee because it was so prominent in Jesus' ministry. Jesus often taught in the Capernaum synagogue. In fact, we would call it his home church in today's vernacular. He taught there so frequently. In our group of 25, we stood in the partially rebuilt ruins of the original first century synagogue there in Capernaum. I mean, it was awesome to just be literally on the site, in the place where Jesus did so much of his teaching. So this busy fishing village, it's, it's the setting for the rest of our story back in Luke 7. Back to Luke 7, we're in verse 2. So there in Capernaum, a centurion's servant whom his master valued highly was sick and about to die. So a centurion in the Roman army was the commander of a century. That is, a, a hundred soldiers. Similar rank and authority to an army captain. Well, this military officer has a servant that he cares for deeply who is really sick. I mean, he's deathly ill. In fact, 
Luke, who's the author of this account, is also a medical doctor. And he actually uses a medical term to make it clear that this servant is on his deathbed. So what does this centurion do on behalf of the servant that he, he cares for? It's found in verse three. The centurion heard of Jesus and sent some elders of the Jews to him, asking him to come and heal his servant. The centurion had heard of Jesus. He probably had not heard Jesus teach. Remember, Jesus did the bulk of his teaching while in a Jewish synagogue. So this Roman officer likely had not heard him teach, but he had heard of Jesus. Well, what has he heard? Well, again, the answer can be found a couple of pages back in your Bible in Luke chapter four. Luke chapter four, verse 31. It reads this way. Then he, Jesus, went down to Capernaum, a town in Galilee, and on the Sabbath began to teach the people. They were amazed at his teaching because his message had authority. So sometime prior to the passage that we're studying this morning, on the Sabbath, same town of Capernaum, no doubt in the synagogue that we stood in, Jesus is teaching. And this earlier passage in Luke 4 records that while he's preaching, Jesus frees a demon-possessed man right in the synagogue with a word from his mouth. Jesus says, be quiet, come out of him, and the demon leaves. The response of the people found in verse 36, man, all the people were amazed and said to each other, what is this teaching? With authority and power, he gives orders to evil spirits and they come out. And the news about him spread throughout the surrounding area. And the news about him spread throughout the surrounding area. That's what the centurion heard about Jesus. He heard all these Jews talking about Jesus. Man, that guy in the synagogue, his teaching's amazing. His message is they have authority. Not only that, he gives orders to evil spirits and they come out, they obey him. We've never seen anything like this guy. That's the word on the street that this centurion has heard. The news about Jesus spreading all over Galilee, and there's more. Luke actually includes in Luke chapter four, he tells us that immediately after leaving the synagogue where he freed the demon-possessed man, Jesus makes his way to Peter's mother-in-law's house. And Jesus heals Peter's mother-in-law by sternly rebuking the fever that was causing her suffering. He sternly rebuked a fever. You know, and there were guys who were there who said, I, I wouldn't believe it if I didn't see it, but I'm telling you the truth. This guy spoke to the fever and it left her just like that. They're amazed. In fact, look at the response in verse, I'm sorry, in verse 40, it continues on. He heals a guy in the synagogue. He then heals Peter's mother-in-law. Then a little bit later, verse 40, same chapter, when the sun was setting, because good Jews did not come out and carry their friends or bring their sick on the Sabbath. The sun sets, Sabbath is over. When the sun was setting, the people brought to Jesus all who had various kinds of sickness, and laying his hands on each one, he healed them. Moreover, demons came out of many people shouting, you are the son of God. All of Capernaum and the surrounding region are buzzing with these amazing events. Sickness healed, demons cast out, people freed of their suffering, and all with just a word from his mouth. Everyone's talking about it, but Luke's not done. Chapter five, verse 12, while in one of the surrounding towns in Galilee, in this northern rim, Jesus heals a man covered with leprosy. Leprosy, incurable disease, and surely the curse of God. That was the thinking in those days. And Jesus heals him. 
with a command from his mouth by saying, be clean, this leper is healed. Look at the response, verse 15, chapter five. The news about Jesus spread all the more so that crowds of people came to hear him and be healed of their sicknesses. I mean, the entire region of Galilee is now talking about Jesus. And just for good measure, Luke records one more miracle in chapter five. Paralyzed man with four good friends gets placed right in front of Jesus, right in someone's overcrowded living room. And Jesus heals this paralytic in front of him and in front of a standing room only crowd. He first tells him, son, your sins are forgiven. And then Jesus says, get up, take your mat and go home. And the paralytic guy gets up and he walks out in front of a stunned crowd. The response of the crowd is found in verse 26. It says, everyone was amazed and gave praise to God. They were filled with awe and said, we have seen remarkable things today. That's what people are saying about Jesus. That's all a backdrop so we can understand what has the centurion heard about Jesus. Of course he had heard of this teacher, preacher, miracle worker, healer. Everyone's heard of him. Everyone's talking about his power, his authority, because they've never seen anything like it. That's why the centurion sent some elders of the Jews to Jesus, asking him to come and heal his servant. Just to note, that's a pretty savvy move by this centurion. Rather than go himself to Jesus, one he's probably never heard teach, but heard of, he sends a delegation of Jewish elders to plead his case, figuring he has a better chance of Jesus responding to his request through fellow Jews, Jewish leaders at that, rather than himself, a Roman military officer. And these Jewish elders not only plead the case of the dying servant, but they lobby for the centurion, trying to convince Jesus that this Roman military leader is worthy of a visit from him. Look at verses four and five. When they came to Jesus, these elders, they pleaded earnestly with him, this man deserves to have you do this because he loves our nation and has built our synagogue. I mean, just listen to these Jewish elders. This centurion deserves to have you do this. The original language, the term means he is worthy of a visit from you. That's a strong language. That is a bold statement by these Jewish elders. Unlike most Roman military officers, this centurion has shown respect for the Jews under his jurisdiction. And apparently he has contributed to the building of their synagogue and both actions have endeared him, have earned him the admiration of these Jewish elders. So these elders kind of lean on Jesus, attempting to compel him to make a visit to this centurion's house for his servant's sake. Almost more surprising than this bold and heavy-handed uh, request by the Jewish elders is Jesus' response to their ask. Verse six, so Jesus went with them. Jesus says, okay, let's go. Lead the way. I, I want you to note what Jesus did not say. Jesus did not say, so sorry to hear about your, your sick servant there, but tell the centurion friend of yours, he can get in line. You, you see all these people? I'm kind of busy here taking care of all these other sick people. You tell them to come to me. He didn't say that. He did not say, well, since your friend is not even a Jew, but rather works for the oppressive power of Rome, you tell your friend, uh, I'm sorry, I, I, I'm not gonna heal his friend. Jesus didn't even try to correct their, their arrogant presumption of entitlement. 
He didn't go preaching on them about a proper view of who's truly deserving, who's truly worthy in God's eyes. Instead, he just goes. Jesus just goes. He goes to cleanse and to heal and to save. He goes wherever help is desperately needed, no matter what. Back to verse six and seven. So Jesus went with them. He was not far from the house when the centurion sent some other friends to Jesus. Lord, don't trouble yourself, they said, for I don't deserve to have you to come under my roof. That is why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. What? Here's where I start to get confused. I'm saying, what, what is going on here? This makes no sense to me. Not long ago, this exact same centurion sent some Jewish elders to convince Jesus, compel him to come visit in order to heal his servant. The elders convincingly argued that this Roman military was, officer was different. They pled his case, and they told him that this centurion was worthy. He was deserving of, his, of a visit from Jesus. And this, this strategy has seemed to work. I mean, Jesus is on his way to the centurion's house. And while on the way, a second delegation sent by the same centurion meets Jesus on the road. And the second group of friends say the most peculiar thing on behalf of their Roman friend. Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I do not deserve to have you to come under my roof. I didn't even consider myself worthy to come to you in person. I mean, this group is saying the exact opposite thing that the Jewish elders said. Their statements could not be more contradictory, more opposite. Both delegations sent to Jesus, same centurion, two different messages, opposite messages, really. I mean, what is going on here? What happened? What changed? What would explain the dramatic change of mind between sending the first delegation of Jewish elders and then sending the second delegation of friends to Jesus? What happened? Let me suggest that the centurion had some time to reflect. He had some time to reflect on exactly what he had heard about Jesus. And he reasoned he had a choice to make. He had two choices, evidenced by the two delegations that he had sent to Jesus. Either he was going to choose to rely on his own merit, his own worth, to get Jesus to respond to him, or he was going to rely on Jesus' authority to cleanse and heal where it's desperately needed. He was going to either make the case that he indeed was worthy, that he deserved to have Jesus visit him, much like the Jewish elders delivered, or he was going to humble himself and admit that he was neither deserving nor worthy, but rather he'd put his full faith and trust in Jesus' power and authority to heal and to cleanse and to save. You see, upon reflection, this centurion remembered what he had heard about Jesus that he cast out demons with a command and the demons obey him, that he dismisses a high fever with a stern rebuke and the fever leaves, that he cleanses a leper with the word be clean and a leper's skin is restored. He remembers that Jesus healed a paralytic twice, first by forgiving his sins and then by giving him the use of his legs with just a word from his mouth. Who the sun sets free is free indeed. That's what this centurion is thinking. The centurion remembered what he heard about Jesus, and so he made his choice. Look again at verses six and seven. Lord, don't trouble yourself, 
for I do not deserve to have you to come under my roof. That's why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you, but say the word and my servant will be healed. Just say the word and my servant will be healed. That's a great statement of faith, people. This centurion is affirming the power and authority of Jesus, the authority to cleanse and heal and save. Just say the word and it'll be done. I believe it. He's saying, I know authority in Jesus. You have it. Just to drive his point home, he illustrates his understanding of how authority works by appealing to his own role as a man with authority. Look at verse eight. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes. To that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. The centurion is saying, I understand how authority works, and Jesus, you have it. I believe that you can just say the word, and my servant will be healed. You know what Jesus' response to all this is? Verse nine, when Jesus heard this, he was amazed at this centurion. And turning to the crowd following him, he said, I tell you, I have not found such great faith even in all of Israel. Jesus says, I'm amazed at this Roman officer. He's probably never heard me preach or teach, but heard about me. This man has great faith, greater faith than I've seen in any of my Jewish friends. He was amazed that this centurion understood that you do not approach Jesus based on merit or worth as if you deserve anything from him. He was amazed that this centurion came to understand the scope of the power and the authority of Jesus, that all authority belongs to him, and that he's a savior who in spite of her own unworthiness chooses to cleanse and to heal and to save and to free people. Jesus was amazed that this centurion, he grasped the gospel. He gets it. He understands the good news better than almost anybody. You know what it does? It begs the question of you and me this morning about how well we understand and know the gospel, the, the good news. See, because you and I, we have a choice to make. We can either rely on our own, merit, our own merit or worth to compel Jesus to do something for us as if we deserve it, or we can come humbly to our Savior who has the power and the authority to cleanse and heal where it's desperately needed. He's the only one who can forgive your sin. I mean, he's the only one who can save. He's the only one who can set you free. He's the only one with the authority to do it. I'm here to, yeah, I'm here to tell you, yes. You know what this, you know what this centurion would say? He, say? he would say, who the sun sets free is free indeed. We want to thank you for watching and listening to our sermons online, and we hope that uh, you will be inspired to live more like Jesus through these. Please check out blackrock.org for more information about our church. Know that you can subscribe to our podcasts on iTunes, and also uh, know that you can give uh, to BlackRock and to our ministry through PushPay, through our mobile app, and on our website. Your uh, donations and your support of our ministry allows us to have uh, these videos online and for us to impact our community.